Welcome to Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three. Sandman, Hellblazer, and today, at last, Preacher. It seems like it's been forever since I recorded a Preacher episode. We did West Coast instead, and then there was Illness... Did Andy sub for me on our previous... Uh, yes, you were not in our previous Preacher episode. Our previous so Preacher episode, yeah. So it has been a, a hot minute. It has been a long-ass time since I covered Preacher for this show. Thanks, Andy! So that makes it all the more important that we recap. <laughs> Previously, a fight between the Saint of Killers and the Grail in Monument Valley resulted in a nuclear blast, which incidentally resulted in Jesse Custer falling out of a plane. But he didn't die from it. But his friends, Tulip and Cassidy, do not know he didn't die from it. Yeah, instead of dying, he had a confrontation with God, lost his eyeball, met a crazy man. Johnny Lee Wombat. Right. Yeah. Went to a meat town and had to save it from capitalism and got high as a motherfucker on payout. Oh, that's all true. Yes. But while he was doing that, his friend Cassidy was busy not being a very good friend by keeping Tulip who was distraught over Jesse's apparent death, plied with drugs and booze so that he could sleep with her. Yeah, not being a good friend to Jesse, not being a good friend to Tulip, and just not being his best self. Come on, Cassidy, you can do better. Yes, and that brings us up to Preacher number 51. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. That's from me and Bobby McGee. Yeah, the title comes from me and Bobby McGee, a country song perhaps most associated with Janis Joplin, written by Chris Christopherson and Fred Foster, and first recorded in 1969. It was a good year for music, 1969. No shit. All four of the issues that we're going to cover today have been written by Garth Ennis, with art by Steve Dillon, and colors by Pamela Rambo, with covers by Glenn Fabry. So this particular Glenn Fabry cover has a deagle and a tulip. Yeah, a handgun on a white backdrop accompanied by a flower. It's a striking and beautiful image. And the first page is already our title page. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. And we open on Tulip waking up bleary-eyed, looking at her night table, which was formerly full of alcohol and Valium. The Leo McGarry classic. Right. We open on Tulip with not much left to lose. Despite the months that have passed, she's pretty much right where we left her coping with Jesse's death through booze and pills and sleeping with Cassidy. But she gets up, checks the nightstand, and then her purse, and then the bathroom cabinet for pills. Upon finally realizing there are none left, she says, I don't need this shit. Yeah, she's finally had enough of being numb. She climbs into the shower. After her shower, she ponders a tube of lipstick, which she evidently decides to put on, puts on her pants, and we see Cassidy reaching for his trademark sunglasses. Yeah, he shows his face out from under the covers, and she tells him she's leaving for good. She's sick of drugging the pain away, and of him and his scummy friends. Like, fuck ya! Cassidy thinks she should be more grateful. He picked her up after Monument Valley and has been keeping them on the move. You've been lost without me, and you fucking well know it, too. Yes, thanks. And he's been keeping them one step ahead of Star... Star couldn't give a shit about us with Jesse gone. What you've been doing is visiting all your low-life pals up and down the West Coast. And yes, very impressive Hollywood connections, Cassidy. A bunch of junkies and an ex-porno producer. You've been living life the way you like it, which is to lie on your drunk ass in some sleaze pit until the owner complains about the smell. And you've been keeping me bombed out of my head so I won't see how pathetic it all is. So you get to keep what you've wanted all along. Me. Right, until it happened that he got so fucked up himself, he forgot to restock the Valium. Yeah, he reiterates, No fucking way are you walking out on me. Yeah, he physically gets in her way, and she points a desert eagle at his face. Yeah, there's that deagle. Tulip, come on, what the fuck's that gonna do to me? It's a big bullet. It'll knock you clean out the door, into the sun. 
You don't get it, do you? This isn't the useless little druggy bimbo you've been fucking for the last six months, the one who stops crying and does what she's told as soon as she gets her pills. This is Tulip. Cassidy, really? This is me. Apparently he requires a demonstration because we cut to the outside of the motel and Cassidy flying straight through the door and the guardrail. This is actually pretty comical. He that lands got some kick. Yeah, he lands in the parking lot in his underwear and has to run like hell to get out of the sun whilst on fire. He hides underneath the car. Yeah, she takes makes her way to the pickup truck. She calmly walks to the truck, gets in, gives him a glare. She drives over his exposed feet so he's not going to be chasing her, and takes off. Oh, you know, I didn't even think of that as, like, so he's not going to be chasing her. I mean, the sun's up. He's not going to be chasing her anyway. <laughs> she just did that because he deserved a little, a little extra kick. <laughs> I see. Now, after making it some distance, she pulls over. This is gorgeous art, by the way. Yeah, she drives out to the desert. She stops to cry over the steering wheel. And she says, I'll always love you, but you're gone. Now, that probably refers to Jesse, but another person it could refer to is, weedly, 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 Tulip's father. <laughs> right, now we jump into a flashback that will carry us most of the next two issues. In a bar, Jake O'Hare is chatting with his buddies about how great having a boy is going to be. Fishing, hunting, camping, all that guy stuff. His name is John William Grady O'Hare, and he is going to make his mark on this damn world. What if it's a girl? At this suggestion from a kind of nerdy-looking redneck named Cecil, <laughs> everybody laughs their ass off. That really encapsulated Cecil better than I expected. <laughs> nerdy-looking redneck? Yeah. A girl. Yeah, right. They're all laughing. Oh, sure. Jake O'Hare could have a daughter. Why the hell not? I like how they actually, they liken having a daughter to being a Democrat. Both are equally unlikely. <laughs> they, they, they explicitly draw that comparison. <laughs> like, men who have daughters voting Democratic is the sort of thing that they do. <laughs> so there's a definite cultural perspective here. Right. Just then, there is a call for Jake from the hospital. He takes the call and he comes back to the guys looking stunned. Damn wife died. Damn baby's a girl. Later at the hospital, Jake sits in a fugue until a nurse tells him he can see his daughter now. Do you think I oughta? Yeah, I love that. He's he's at first so utterly clueless as to what to do. He doesn't even know if he'd, have, he'd be of any use to a daughter. Yeah, but the nurse insists, shows Jake how to hold her. Yeah, and he gets, he gets one look at her, and it's love at first sight. Cute little baby face and a tuft of blonde hair already present. Aw, oh, hell, so you're a girl. That needn't be so bad. We cut to a couple of years down the line. Little Tulip is already handling a gun like a pro. Her father calls her Little Petal, and she's asking why she has to go to school. He tells her there's important things she needs to learn in school, like about America and how it came to be, and the president and Congress and the communists. They're the fellows who want to take away our guns, little pedal. You know, that brings to mind a really interesting thought. You were talking about the myth of America, or we have talked about the myth of, the, of America kind of throughout our preacher coverage, yeah. right? And here we're kind of getting a look at maybe the dark side of the myth of America. This idea of, like, the boogeyman myth that's kind of used as an unflattering comparison to make us overlook the flaws in American society. The idea of painting ideological deviation as un-American. Well, yeah, yeah, that and, that and just, like, the, the idea that there's always a boogeyman that wants your freedom. Right. And that because of that, it's important to stay loyal and, you know, and overlook America's flaws. America's historical missteps. Right, right. What's interesting here is that Tulip's father is about John Custer's age, and so perhaps had uh, experience in Vietnam himself. Mm, okay. But he definitely didn't come out of it, you know, disillusioned with the country and that kind of myth of Western capitalism the way that John Custer did. Yeah, Jake definitely loves America in his way, or loves the concept that he has of America. 
And he has his faults, but he's being portrayed here as a very, a very admirable character. Right. Yeah, this is skipping ahead a little bit. But at one point, Tulip is going to complain about dating that she knows she'll never meet anyone as nice as her father. Right. Like, he is one of those good men that we've kind of talked about in the context of this series. And Tulip discovers throughout her own life that there's way too many of the other kind. Right. So we cut to a winter scene where Jake is teaching Tulip to shoot. You'll get all the bad shots out of your system and you'll start making good ones, same as anybody. And then he mentions that since it's nearly Christmas, he's going to let her have a try with his fucking hand cannon. (laughs) Do you think that that's meant to be a Colt Python... 357 Magnum? I guessed it was a 357 Magnum of some kind. I'm not an expert on this subject. Although I will say that Steve Dillon generally draws guns in an identifiable level of detail. He tells her, Front sight on your target, little pedal. Front sight. Find your shot. Take a breath. Front sight. Always, always, always. Front sight. Squeeze. And this is the litany that we heard her going through as she took aim on the Grail soldiers way back in the San Francisco story arc the lessons she would put to use. So, Little Petal puts a massive bullet right through a beer bottle, sitting on a stump some ways away, and simultaneously goes ass backwards into a snowbank. She's got nothing but her smoking gun and her boots sticking up out of the snow. Yeah, there's some good physical comedy in this issue. As they walk home, he tells her she can be whatever she wants. And he has something of a rude awakening, we find out, when he tries to put her on the baseball team. Yeah, we cut to a bar where he's complaining about a coach not letting her be on the team because she's a girl. And he gives a speech here on the equality of the sexes to the surprise of the boys at the bar. Well, yeah, not only are they surprised to find him giving a speech on the equality of the sexes, but they all agree with it. I tell you, boys, if a girl can't do the things she wants because of some stupid rules, if she ain't got the same choice as fellas do, Hell, if we ain't got real genuine equality between the sexes, then there is always going to be something seriously wrong with this great country of ours. Goddamn right. You said it, Jake. We see that at school, Tulip has trouble fitting in. She tries to talk to the girls about Kelly's heroes, and they're not interested because it's a boys' movie. She tries to talk to the boys about Kelly's heroes, and they're not interested in her because she's a girl. And yeah, we get a speech bubble here that just has a question mark in it. That's how young Tulip feels about this situation. I have written, she makes a quizzical sound. No, Mr. O'Hare, I would not say that assault with a baseball bat constitutes justice being done. We find Tulip in trouble in the principal's office. It seems some boys ambushed her and stole her candy and comic books, so she cracked one with a bat. Yeah, specifically, she laid in wait at a later time to get revenge with a baseball bat. Yeah, the principal says that she can't let Tulip off on this one, but Jake says at least she can get on the baseball team now, right? How about that swing, huh? The principal suggests that Jake encourage Tulip in some feminine interests. Well, Mrs. Carlyle, no disrespect intended to your point of view, ma'am, but I always figured it was best to encourage her in what she liked. Yeah, now Jake's supposed to discipline Tulip at home, but instead he takes her out for ice cream. Why were you being so nice to Mrs. Carlyle, Daddy? Us fellas have to be polite to you ladies, little petal. It's how we're raised. How come? Hmm... I ain't exactly sure, little pedal. It might be to make up for ladies generally having less fun. So I like this. I mean, we saw that Jake wanted a boy and he was surprised to have a girl. And he's definitely raising Tulip to share a lot of his interests. But he's taking interest in what she wants, what she cares about. He's not, he's not pushing her into masculinity because that's what he expected. He's just encouraging her to be like him and, and at the same time recognizing that her status as a girl limits her a lot in the country as it stands. That's right. Now we cut here to another scene. Shark fishing. Yeah, they're apparently shark fishing out of Bar Harbor. And after this scene, from now on, whenever we see uh, Tulip's father, he has a hook for one hand. (laughs) (laughs) I love the way this is done. We have one panel of Tulip reeling in the shark, and we can kind of see that Jake's got his left hand down in that corner of the boat, near where the shark is, and then just from then on, he has a hook. But even that doesn't seem to be a big deal. It doesn't seem to slow him down. It's just a thing that happened to him. Cut to Jake is reading Tulip a story one night, 
he realizes that she's asleep, and as he kisses her goodnight, he comments, Pretty little thing. Pretty as your mama was. And that's saying something. And Tulip, who's not really asleep, smiles. Oh, and that is the end of that issue. So on the cover of Preacher number 52, even hit girls get the blues, we have a portrait of Tulip. Yeah, and she looks more like Tulip than we often see her Tulip on Preacher covers. Yeah, I noticed that too. I also want to point out that Glenn Fabry signs this picture with the word Tulip. He gives it a little title, mm-hmm. and next to the word Tulip, he's drawn a little symbol of a tulip. Yeah. Now, the title, Even Hit Girls Get the Blues, probably refers to Tom Robbins' 1976 novel, Even Cowgirls Get the Blues. It always bothers me a little, though, Tulip being referred to as a hit girl. It always strikes me as more something that's fun to say, you know, accompanied by his hit girl ex-girlfriend, Tulip O'Hare, than something that's really true about the character. We know she actually only took one job as a hit person and didn't even kill that guy. Yeah, in the TV show, they kind of reimagined Tulip as an actual hit girl who kills people all the time. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think it works as well. But particularly, we don't see Tulip being a hit girl in this issue. No. This issue does not cover that brief period of time. So it's kind of a weird choice of a title. Right. It covers her blues, but not her hit girl career. We're back in the present day for a moment. Tulip is sitting in a diner. She asks if there's a liquor store nearby. And when the waitress replies that there's not... She says, thank Christ for that. So she's still drying out. Back in flashback, we find Tulip and Jake out hunting. She's 13 and mildly insufferable about it, but he wants to stay out until she bags her first buck. He goes off into the woods with a roll of toilet paper to take a dump. Two other hunters happen along. We hear a gunshot, and then immediately, fuck! Oh no! Yeah, the other two hunters try to stop her from seeing it, but her father's been shot in the back of the head. And this image is played up for black comedy. We see him with his ass up in the air and the, and the roll of toilet paper on his hook hand. Yeah, not a super dignified way to find him. Mm-hmm. But yeah, a very tragic scene. I think that Garth Ennis likes doing that. He kind of likes playing even his moments of tragedy that are like, of great emotional significance to the main characters with a kind of dark humor to them. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking here of the first issue of The Boys. I have not read that issue. Okay, well, I'll put the moment I'm thinking of in the show notes, but I think a lot of people will know what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but we're going to come back to that even in this story arc, too. A lot of preacher characters suffer sort of comically awful fates. And the series, and sometimes even the characters, have a sense of humor about it. Right. On the next page, we get, it's a couple of years later, Tulip's first meeting with Amy Grinderbeiner, who we've met before. Right. They are at a private school. Tulip is the smartest girl in school, and Amy is the richest. Tulip mostly likes to be left alone, and so she's asking what Amy wants. And Amy has decided that she wants to make a friend who she knows is uninterested in her father's money. Right. A little later on, we find Tulip grousing about her aunt selling all her dad's stuff and sending her to private school without asking what she wanted. Yeah, she mentions that she's in care of the state until she's 17. Right, and Um, goes home to an orphanage for Christmas. Amy invites her back to her place, noting that she has her father wrapped around her little finger. So we find them at a townhouse where Amy is giving Tulip a makeover. So guys, notice us, she explains. But I don't want to meet guys. Even handsome ones? Doesn't matter how handsome they are, they always turn out to be jerks. No one's ever going to be as nice as my... as... Oh, girlfriend. Someday your prince will come. You know, the last time we met Amy in Preacher, I got the impression that she had met and been impressed by Tulip's dad. Now we learn that he died before they ever met. I guess Tulip's admiration for her dad must have really made an impression on Amy. Yeah, she seems like the type who probably talked about him all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, he was a huge part of her life when he was alive. They had a lot of adventures together. Yeah. What do you make of this line here where Amy says that her dad's really rich, but when her mom left, she said, if you hang out with assholes, you'll keep getting surprises. You know, I couldn't really get to the bottom of the whole subplot with Amy's parents. Mm -hmm. It's not entirely clear what happens between them. She talks here about her mom having left, but then it seems like in another scene set later on, she talks about their divorce. As if it just happened. 
Okay. So I couldn't really piece the whole thing together. And I don't know what she's getting at with this story. But I do know that she comments on how pretty Tulip is and how she's naturally pretty without needing any makeup. Which, eh, kind of rubs me the wrong way. Okay. Like, the idea that some women need makeup and other women don't is kind of... Objectifying? Well, it's pretty outdated at this point. You know, it's objectifying and it kind of takes as an assumption that women have to be pretty. Right. You know, whether they, they might need makeup or they might not need makeup, but whether they want makeup is... You know, is not even a part of the calculation. The goal is necessarily to be pretty. Right. Yeah. As opposed to like, wear makeup if you want to, don't if you don't want to. Mm. Which is, I think, the actual right way to look at it. (laughs) Right. Regardless, we do get a moment here where Amy shows Tulip her face in a mirror. And Tulip seems to perhaps realize for the first time that she is pretty. Yeah. I just, I didn't love that whole thing. Mm -hmm. You know, like... Obviously, like, it is an important moment in a person's life when they kind of come to take ownership of their sexuality. Right. But just the way that it plays out here, where it's like, it's very much, it's not about her taking control of her sexuality, it's about her realizing that she's pretty. Okay. And it's in the context of all this talk of, like, you're pretty, you don't need makeup, I need makeup, but you don't. Like, yeah, I just didn't love it. I get that. Yeah, I I think that makes a lot of sense. I think... That's called out maybe minimally here and that Amy says, you know, we're doing this to meet guys and Tulip says, I don't know if I care about that. Right. Yeah, even Garth Ennis is kind of playing both sides of this idea. Mm -hmm. But I do think that he has a tendency to want not all of his characters by any stretch, but perhaps his heroes to be the most virtuous and the most pretty and have the best sex. (laughs) Well, yeah, as we're going to discover not too much later in this same episode... You know, Tulip was immediately struck by Jesse's physical beauty the first time she saw him, too. Right. Right. So this idea of Amy pointing out that Tulip is just effortlessly prettier than she is plays into that. Right. The two of them are in a truck on their way to a frat party. And Amy wants to show Tulip her new Christmas present. Amy's love for guns is one of the first things that we learned about her. Right. The first issue in which she appears is called Gun Chicks. Yeah, and Tulip had basically met up with her to acquire guns for their mission, right? Yeah. The fact that she just got this little shorty shotgun as a Christmas present also kind of calls back to the previous issue where Tulip got to try the 357 Magnum as a, as a Christmas present. Yeah, that's a good point. Tulip begs Amy to put the gun away, though. Amy, I'm not fucking joking. I hate guns! Oh, we get a really good panel here of Tulip's angry face. And Amy remembers what happened to Tulip's father. Yeah, and because she's actually a good friend, she does put the gun away and apologizes. They get to the frat party. Tulip asks if they know anybody there, but Amy kind of ignores the question. Yeah, we can see a bunch of rich kids doing weed and coke. Everybody's in suits. They are offered the punch which Amy happily accepts, while Tulip prefers to have her own bottle of Jack Daniels so that she knows exactly what she's drinking. Right, yeah. The first time I read this, I thought that Tulip intended to put away that whole bottle, although we don't generally see her drink hard whiskey throughout the series. I've realized now that she chose an unopened bottle for the same reason it's a bad idea for Amy to go to town on that punch. She's got a natural caution for her own safety, a bit of self-reliance that Amy doesn't quite have. The next page, we get the sense some time has passed. Amy is kind of babbling almost incoherently. Isn't this amazing? Look at that guy. What's this music? Isn't he gorgeous? Holy shit. Yeah, she's too drunk and too loud. Well, drunk and possibly drugged as well. Right. Tulip asks if she's okay. Yeah, I actually... No, I'm not. Tulip goes to get their coats so they can get out of here. By the time she gets back, Amy's gone. Shit. Yeah, this is a really good panel. Tulip is standing there with the jackets in her arms, and we see the silhouettes of the whiskey bottle and the punch glass. But no Amy. Yeah. She looks around. She sees a nearly closed bedroom door. Going inside, she sees Amy half-conscious on the bed with four guys surrounding her. One of them has his pants down. Another one is wearing a tie. Like I said, they dressed up for this party. 
The guy with the tie, by the way, is recognizably the one who gave Amy the punch in the first place. You want some too, you fucking whore? Says the guy with his pants down. And Tulip runs. Amy comes to, realizes where she is, and screams. One guy panics while another threatens her to keep quiet. Just then, it turns out, Tulip didn't run very far. Yeah, and she does a Billy Joel right through the wall <laughs> in Amy's truck. I was going to say a Terminator, but that's good, too. <laughs> they drive cars through buildings. That's like the second thing they do after terminating. Well, Billy Joel is scarier than a Terminator because Billy Joel is real. This is true. This is true. She... And equally determined. <laughs> He does not arrest. He cannot be bargained with. He absolutely will not stop. <laughs> Until he gets another hit record. <laughs> Tulip leaps out of the car and starts blazing with the shotgun. Fuck! No! Jesus! Yell the frat boys. Amy, get... Get in the fucking truck. Cock-sucking fucking sluts. Tulip points the shotgun at this guy, the one with his pants down, and pulls the trigger. It goes click. And he goes whiz. Yeah, this is a lovely piece of physical comedy because his pants are down. We see his legs from behind as the stream of urine starts. Driving home, Amy says Tulip was amazing and totally saved her. And totally unstoppable. Tulip thinks they're in trouble, but Amy says these guys can't call the cops because they'd have to admit to the almost rape. Officer, officer, this crazy girl blew the shit out of our frat house. We were so scared we never even got to rape her friend. It isn't funny, Amy. I almost killed that guy. I fucking would have if the gun was loaded, and that's the kind of thing you never get away from. I fucking hate guns, Amy, okay? But they were gonna... They would've... You saved me. Now, in tears, after being chastised by Tulip, Amy goes on to say, Guys like that, they don't go to jail, Tulip. Their dads can buy judges. I should know. They do whatever they want, and anyone who stands up to them is a slut or a tease, or is probably just asking for it. It all gets fixed. It all gets fixed, and they grow up to be president or something. But you had a gun. So Tulip's relationship with guns goes back and forth. We see a number of different sort of points of view here. Her gun-loving dad died due to irresponsible gun ownership, but now she was able to save Amy because she had a gun. Kind of like in the old westerns, the gun is portrayed here as an equalizer, something that gives people who would have been defenseless power and self-reliance. Well, and throughout the portrayal of Tulip as a character in this comic book, the gun is often a symbol of her empowerment. Right. You know, the gun is what got her out of that motel room with Cassidy. Yeah. And so, again, this goes back to, like, just like the myth of America, there's a kind of, there's a dark side and a good side to the gun. Mm -hmm. There's the gun as the the thing that, when used carelessly, can result in tragedy, and that's how Tulip lost her father. But there's also the gun as the as the equalizer, as the tool for self defense. Yeah, exactly. Her willingness to use it and her know how gives her strength, and she is often the most effective of the main characters. We have another flash forward here. Amy is just coming from the divorce settlement, it seems. This is not the divorce settlement. This is her dad's wrongful death. Tulip is reading a paper on which the cover story is Senator Grinderbinder Choked on Clam. Oh, oh, okay. I did not read that headline. Okay, so he died. And so it's not a divorce settlement. I told you I could never quite figure out what was going on right. with Amy's family. So it's not a divorce settlement. He died and they got a big settlement. Right, and Amy now has a great big check for millions and millions of dollars, which could be some combination of the wrongful death settlement or the money that her family had. Anyway, she's got a lot of money now. Her father's estate. Yeah, and the two of them are talking about their future. Do you want to go to college? Or do you want to take a year off and see the country on this great big check of mine? Yeah, let's take a year off. And then Amy responds, let's take two. And that brings us to a tiny bar called Sam's in Texas. Yeah, Amy is complaining that she waited for Tulip all night the night before and never saw her. Tulip explained that a Jesse Custer happened. <laughs> yeah, that's the short version. She saw this guy, who she immediately knew was, well, super good looking at least. 
Yeah, we see young Jesse here. And to Steve Dillon's credit, he's drawn noticeably younger and even more gorgeous than the always attractive Jesse Custer. Right, then Tulip had to fight Jesse's girlfriend in the ladies' room. Self-defense. We see Tulip slamming her head into a toilet. And then, and we see the two of them having sex for the first time, which we are given to understand is Tulip's first time having sex. So you, you finally, holy shit, so who is this guy? And now we cut to the present day. We're in New York City. Tulip is in Amy's doorway. He's gone. I'll always love him, Amy, but he's gone. Right, and she adds, For Christ's sake, don't give me anything to drink. Amy repeats a refrain that is going to be asked of both Jesse and Tulip in this story arc. Where have you been? Right. So Amy gets Tulip some hot chocolate, and Tulip reveals that Jesse died in the nuclear bomb that went off in Arizona. This was big news. All the characters have heard of it. Right, she would know about the bomb. She didn't know that Jesse died in it. And as a matter of fact, she knows that the opposite is true. Tulip, listen to me, okay? Jesse is not dead. I don't know what happened in Arizona, but Jesse called me about a month after all that. Right after you did, in fact. That time when you sounded so weird. Then he called me again three days ago, from Texas. He's coming here, honey. He says he wants me to help him look for you. Tulip freaks out. She knows Jesse's dead, so why is her best friend arguing about it with her? Amy swears she's not fucking with Tulip. I swear to God, Tulip, I am your friend. Of all the people in this fucking world, why would I want to fuck with you? And then... Amy's doorbell buzzes. And that brings us to Preacher number 53. Too dumb for New York City and too ugly for L.A. The title comes from a 1992 album by Waylon Jennings. On the cover here, we have an American flag with many scenes from Preacher comics behind it. And this cover is credited to Glenn Fabry even though we definitely have some Steve Dillon art here in the background. So we've got another issue to go before we get back to that moment. We open on a thumb hitchhiking. Yeah, and I say we go through this issue kind of fast. Okay. Because, you know, to the extent that it's a good issue, and I do think it has some of the series' most memorable moments in it, mm-hmm. we can't really do it justice. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a lot of jokes that maybe run on a little too long and that aren't important to the plot. Okay, I think this issue has some serious thematic resonance, so I'll try to bring some of that stuff up. Okay. But there isn't a ton of plot to it. Jesse and Skeeter are driving east. Jesse mentions that he wants to make New York City that night. Now, he sees the hitchhiker and decides to stop because he wants someone to talk to. The hitchhiker, Marty Strauss, is a blonde guy with a cowboy hat and a handlebar mustache. A.K.A. Tom Coos. Right, he used to do porn under the name Tom Coos, and he is headed for Cincinnati. Marty reveals that he accidentally killed a bunch of people in a vibrator mishap, resulting in his being blacklisted from porn. This is the kind of ludicrous backstory that could only happen to a preacher character. Well, any Garth Ennis character, really. Right. But even though he got beaten up by an enforcer and then blacklisted, he's not bitter. This is America, the land of endless opportunity and redemption. He tears up a little as he talks about this. Yeah, only in America could he have ever gotten his 15 minutes of fame. And because he's in America, he knows he'll land on his feet again. I do want to point this out, which I thought was funny. He doesn't miss the porn business because he never liked all the swearing. I mean, having sex with people on camera, that was fine, but talking dirty while you're doing it? I always found that kind of crude. After Marty gets out of the car, Jesse starts listening to a news story about Arseface. Arseface has just finished construction on his custom-built mansion, Arseland. And it turns out that there are a number of lawsuits against Arseface because a number of teenagers have tried to duplicate the accident that cost him his face. Right, since he got famous, 30 teenagers have tried shooting themselves to look like him. Only two have survived, and they're comatose. This is setting up some stuff with Arseface that is going to come back. He tries to comment that he's sorry people are being hurt, but his manager, Gene Sargent, steps in. If I may say a word or two in my young friend's defense... While we at Georgia Records deeply regret these tragic accidents, we can in no way accept responsibility for them occurring. As my old pappy used to say, you stick your hand in the fire on someone else's say-so, screw you. I'm sure they'll hold your job slinging burgers till you get out of the hospital. Right, and this is the latest in a long line of inflammatory statements by Gene Sargent, who's stirring up quite a bit of controversy around Arsface. 
Next up, we see waiting by the side of the road, Bob Glover, Freddie Allen, sexual investigators. Yeah, we get a whole bunch of mildly homophobic sex jokes while these two take a ride from Jesse. They sort of explain their backstory. Jesse tries to figure out where he remembers them from. It's the party at Jesus Decides. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Bob explains that when he came out to his dad in Yorkshire, his dad beat the crap out of him, and that's why he came to the States. With a coal shovel. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah, and he does give a kind of a moving homily on America. To come sailing into New York after crossing Atlantic, I had to work my passage, and I think you know what I'm trying to say. You look up and you see that Liberty last wave and her big little dildo washer and you into brave new world of opportunity and opulence, and you think, it all starts here. Me second chance at life. Jesse replies, you're a hell of an American, Bob. Y'all take care now. Yeah, we also learn that they are currently bounty hunting Tom Coos, and Jesse assures them that they will find him in Philadelphia. Yeah, and then he says, knowing full well that Tom Coos is in Cincinnati, he tells them if Philly doesn't work out, they should check out Boston or Toronto. Right. And before driving away, Jesse remembers where he's seen Bob before. Always did wonder what happened to him. Okay, so now comes, this is page 335 in the trade. My note on this page was, oh, Jesse found the comments section. <laughs> okay, so Jesse is listening to the radio, and this page is almost a pure wall of text over a cool picture of Jesse driving at night, lit only by his cigarette. The guests on the radio show are Ulysses Get and Martha Moore. We've met them before in Preacher number 38. We saw them on TV. Yeah, and they're just having an incredibly reductive and unconstructive conversation about <laughs> feminism versus the patriarchy. Right, yeah. Just basically kind of throwing barbs at each other and each reducing the other to uh, the kind of lowest common denominator. Yeah, I mean, these characters are basically stereotypes. There's a caller who calls in who just wants to shout fuckers on the radio and is told, there is no place for that kind of sickening profanity on talk radio. We're trying to inspire opinion and debate here. We are not in the business of promoting rabble-rousing filth. Yeah, so again, a little pot shot at the media. <laughs> the next caller is Jesse from Texas. Right, and he uses the word of God as he says... Turns out it works over the phone. Can they quit yelling slogans at each other like a couple of goddamn parrots and just tell us what they really want? Well, that's an interesting question, Jesse. Any thoughts, Martha? I... I... Oh, God! Cock! Oh, Christ, poetry's not enough anymore. It's gotta be cock! Well, isn't that a surprise? How about you, Ulysses? Er... I want cock, too. Yeah, so... <laughs> that's... That bothers me. <laughs> like I said, these characters are, are stereotypes, and... And are being deliberately denied their dignity, but the idea that both lesbians and Republicans doth protest too much. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> right. Right. We don't get a good look at the next hitchhiker, but we can recognize his distinctive accent as he thanks Jesse for the ride. Thank you very much. Yeah, so he's got Elvis in his car here, who is now walking the land. And they talk about what's great about America. He mentions that he's heard a bunch of stories about what he's doing now, and most of them aren't true. But he talks about how great America is. You know, says Jesse in response, I've been hearing a lot about dreams this past while, about second chances and such, and what folks expect from this place and the hopes they invest in it. And I do know this is a great, great country, even if sometimes its future lies in the hands of fools. But I worry it might not stand the weight of all them goddamn dreams. Elvis replies, just because she opens gates to the stars, that don't mean every man steps through them gonna climb that high. All America does is show the way. Whole point of this country is that most folks are too blind to see it. Finally, Jesse arrives in New York. He's at Amy's door. Amy, honey, I'm sorry if I woke you. Jesse? Jesse, get up here now. Well, I got my dog here. I don't know if... Jesse, will you please just come on up right now, okay? She's here. And that is the end of issue 53. On the cover of Preacher number 54, we have Jesse and Tulip kissing in a heart-shaped frame. Around them are flitting four cute little cupids, except when I say cute, two things. First of all, Glenn Fabry's extremely detailed art, and second, they're all arseface. And when you say cupids, they're actually cherubs. 
Yeah. Okay, valid point. This issue is titled, I Built My Dreams Around You. That is a line from Fairy Tale of New York, a Pogue song. And on the first page, Jesse and Tulip, who you might have thought would have some friction to get past, are apparently already naked <laughs> and quite happy to see each other. Well, I think friction is involved. Ugh. Amy, meanwhile, is drinking and smoking Why? in the downstairs. <laughs> Yeah, there's a sad guy in a green suit sitting there crying and singing while Amy is sexiled. He is sloshing his way through Billy Joel's She's Always a Woman. He will not stop. <laughs> no. <laughs> Tulip and Jesse are holding each other on the floor. Tulip says, I was in hell without you. She asks, what happened to your poor eye? And then it comes to her that she has a lot of questions. Why weren't you killed when you fell out of the plane? What have you been doing? I mean, it's been months and months and months. Jesse, where have you been? Amy and the barman look over the jukebox with equal disdain. Skeeter the dog, it seems, has also been sexiled as the bartender gives him a bowl of water. Well, a bowl of what we hope is water. This is a bartender. <laughs> that could be a gin and tonic in there. <laughs> it's an offense to the science of bartending to mix a gin and tonic in a dog bowl. <laughs> They start talking about how they wish there was some country in the jukebox, but the owner of the place hates it. And Amy brings up the Willie Nelson song, Time of the Preacher. I like it because it reminds me of a friend of mine, this guy who's kind of a preacher. Kind of a preacher? Yeah, he's currently banging his girlfriend's brains out on the floor of my apartment. Kind of a preacher. It's kind of a violent image. <laughs> I don't think you're supposed to take it that literally. That's not a good way to say sex. Amy quickly recaps that as soon as Jesse and Tulip saw each other, it was business time, and she and the dog discreetly withdrew. Discretion in December. You must be fond of those two. It's ten below out there. He comments, It's nice, isn't it, when two people are that devoted to each other? It is, but Amy says something's wrong, and she knows whose fault it is. Back upstairs, Tulip is still wondering how this could have happened. You saw us together, and you left me with him? Took a while before I could even stand up again, honey. Seeing the two of you in that bar like that just about killed me. Just reached down into me and pulled out my heart. But I thought you were dead. Yeah, and when I did stand up, I felt dead. Felt like the last good thing in my life was gone. They took your mom and your daddy, and now they gone and took her too. So I... I got lost, I guess. And you think I wanted that? Did you hate me? Blame me? Is that why you didn't come after us? No, all I thought was, that's it. She thinks you're dead and she's moved on. There ain't no blame in that. Now, Jesse is dressing it up a little bit here, because... We saw into his brain and how he was kind of imagining Tulip as, you know, a cheap evil skank. Yeah, that's right. He imagined evil Tulip sleeping with evil Jody. You thought that? For a while. You idiot. Yep. What bugs Tulip is being left with him. Cassidy, why, Jesse, why? Why did you leave me with that evil fucking monster? Tulip, Cassidy ain't... Hell, I ain't exactly sure what I think of him right now, but he ain't no monster. You mean, you don't know? How could you not know? The way he is? The things he did? You don't know because I'd never told you. Yeah, Tulip never told Jesse that Cassidy was aggressively pursuing her, basically almost harassing her, kind of the whole time that the three of them were traveling together. Yeah, ever since the second stop in New York. She never told Jesse because she didn't want their friend group to be ripped apart. Amy is elaborating on this same story to the bartender downstairs. Tulip and Jesse were born to love, Amy says. You see those two together and you know why the stars are shining. You know what time it is. She reminisces about how intense they were when they first got together and how cold it seemed when they were apart. And then, presumably because the world is a good place and it is worth fighting for after all, they found each other again. Amy says that Tulip and Jesse are on a quest, and they're going to pull it off because Jesse's unstoppable. But they picked up this guy, Cassidy. Now, I don't quite know what his story is. I only met him for a second. But it's like Tulip told me he's this real 24-7 party guy, 100% attitude, okay? And all I could see was this nervous little boy. Well, it was only for a second. I mean, he had good reason to be nervous because he'd just made a pass at Tulip when Jesse's back was turned. And I told her to tell him. Because that kind of thing always ends in tears, right? Floods. So the next thing you know, Tulip calls me sounding really weird, and Jesse calls to say she thinks he's dead for some reason, 
but he's on his way to find her, and the months go by and suddenly she shows up looking just awful, as if something terrible's been done to her, and the whole damn thing's got Cassidy written all over it. Jesse's looking out the window on the snow, Tulip's looking down there, together but apart. But he says if she tells him these things about Cassidy, he believes her. He was going to stay in New Orleans, and I thought, fine, problem solved. But he came with us after all, and he begged me for a last chance, and I couldn't tell you and wreck everything. I was so fucking stupid. Please don't say that. You couldn't have known in a million years. I was stupid. I should have pulled my head out of my ass and walked right in there and got you away from him. Instead, I fucked up and you went to hell. They turn back to each other and embrace. Yeah, and we get this page of them just kind of enjoying a moment of silence. Jesse looks off into space and wonders of Cassidy, who the hell is that guy? Let's go out, Tulip says. The barman asks if Amy ever has time for her own romance. She tries to let him down easy, but he says he didn't mean to flirt. Yeah, actually, he has no sexual urges whatsoever. He was accidentally chemically castrated, he says. She looks horrified, but it wasn't a punishment. It was just an accident, really. It seems he went down to a police precinct to sort out a dispute over parking tickets. He was in the right. And because his name is Joe Soap, and he came on the same day that a man named John Soap, a pedophile, was expected to show up for chemical castration... Voluntary, right? Yes. They confused him for the wrong Soap. Once he'd signed the paperwork they put in front of him, he couldn't talk them out of it. So he ended up with a million-dollar settlement that he promptly lost all of in his divorce, and John Soap ended up being killed in prison. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting that he seems more concerned with John Soap's fate having missed his chemical castration than with his own problems. He's just a good guy. Amy starts banging her head against the bar. He says, Oh, please don't hurt yourself, miss. Call me Amy, Joe. Pleased to meet you, Amy. I suppose that's why I like hearing about people like those friends of yours. Born to love? Wasn't that what you said? That's so wonderful. I'm a hopeless romantic. But a story like theirs, it surely gives you hope in a mean old world like this one. Jesse is smoking coolly by a car. Then he gets wanged in the head with a snowball. Yeah, he asks Tulip what she did that for, and she says, Ha ha ha, fun! You want to have fun? Now? Tulip explains that she knows the two of them are in a bad spot. She's the one that it happened to. It's going to take a long time for the two of them to deal with it. But for the moment, they've been given a second chance, and if she wants to play in the snow, that's what she's going to do. She also uses the phrase, Jesse, this is me, mirroring her interaction with Cassidy at the beginning of the story arc. Tell me why you came to find me. Not how long you agonized over it, or how you decided, or all the different fears and possibilities that went through your mind. Just why. Because living without you ain't really living. That's why we're going to make it, Jesse. Tulip asks why Jesse has to make it so hard on himself, and he says, Guys like me, honey, life ain't supposed to be simple. Just how we're raised, I guess. She apparently likes it. She tells him to say it again. Guys like me, it's how we're raised? That? That's it, Jesse. Guys like you. And she gives him a hug. That seemed to me to be calling back to the scene with her father. Right. She and Amy kind of made that explicit in their last conversation, or I should say their first conversation. There are, like, two men who are good enough in the world, Jake O'Hare and Jesse Custer. <laughs> back downstairs at the bar, Joe is talking about how, although the world can be dark and miserable, People like Jesse and Tulip are the proof that there's hope. Amy says, Because in the halls of his memory still echoed her eyes. Right, and she is borrowing from the lyrics of Time of the Preacher. A blonde man, who may or may not have been listening, staggers out drunk, though not without dispensing this wisdom. When you can jerk off to the thought of your wife and not just shum blonde in a stroke book, ask when you know it's love. Yeah, and this is the last moment that we have of Amy and this bartender, and she says, have one yourself, which John Constantine said to a bartender. He used the same phrase at the end of a recent Hellblazer comic that we covered. Oh, yeah. Not recent as in published recently. But right. Yeah, recent on our show. Jesse and Tulip embracing the snow. You know what this is tonight? Snowing like this on the streets of New York? It's our fairy tale. And we get a full page of them kissing as the snow falls around them. And the title page and the image kind of calling back to the Pogues. They're 
wonderful Christmas classic. I am not enough of a Pogues expert to know if the lyric was used accurately in this comic book. I mean, the title works. Jesse and Tulip's dreams are built around each other. Their happiness is dependent on each other. In this song, things are just awful, and the couple's dreams are all dead, but the man still says, I built my dreams around you. Is that a moment of redemption? Well, if or you of damnation at... in the context of the song? I think it's... I still think it's kind of fundamentally romantic, mm -hmm. right? You know, when people get married, they say for better or for worse. Yeah. And Jesse always says to Tulip, you know, how long am I going to love you till the end of the world? It's about how even though their American dream went to shit and heroin, mm -hmm. leaving was never an option for him. Okay, so when she says, we got together and it destroyed all of our dreams, his reply is, but my dream is to be with you. Yeah, hopefully Jesse and Tulip have a ha happier outcome <laughs> than, <laughs> yeah. than the couple from that song. Yeah. So the theme of redemption and forgiveness continues through this story arc. The third issue in particular is all about second chances and the redemptive power of America. The dreams presented are not just about hope or ambition, but coming back from hardship, suffering, and misdeeds. The theme stays with us, and it'll come to a head when Jesse confronts Cassidy. Now, that brings us to the end of the fifth out of six Preacher TPBs. Mm -hmm. We're getting into the home stretch now. Tulip and Jesse are reunited. There's a big showdown with Cassidy that we can already tell is on the horizon. Mm -hmm. We're coming up on the conclusion of this series. Yeah, and Tulip and Jesse reunited sort of echo the moment between Texas and the Spaceman a couple issues ago in The Land of Bad Things. If things are this bad, I'll give up. They ain't. Once they're together again, once they have hope again, they can't give up. As bad as things are, the struggle becomes worth it again. Yeah, and the two of them, you know, they have a lot to work through. They've both been through a terrible time, especially Tulip, over the last six months. But there's no resentment, you know? Between Jesse and Tulip, right. Right, they're immediately happy to see each other. Yeah, they don't blame each other for what went wrong in their lives when they were separate, and they are immediately committed to working through this together. They'll have to decide to what extent they forgive Cassidy, but forgiveness is not the same as being a victim, and Tulip is plenty tough with him when she needs to be. She knows that if she gives him one more chance, he'd make her a victim again, and she doesn't give him that. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's really nice to see that Jesse does not come back from salvation and rescue Tulip. She eventually brings herself together and rescues herself. And that I think is a really important moment for her. Right, the real Tulip comes back. Yeah. Yeah, she just looks around one morning, realizes there isn't any Valium, decides she doesn't need it, and makes her decision to carry on with her life. Right, exactly, and handles Cassidy herself. Is that necessarily realistic? Like, biologically speaking, for an addict? <laughs> uh, not really, but... Yeah, I mean, she's going to have to work, I think, to overcome what she did to her body and soul during that time. Right. Or what Cassidy did to her body and soul. But she was able to get out of that room. Right. Yeah, I like that she, she absolutely holds Cassidy to account for mm -hmm. his part in it, and she also absolutely holds herself to account for her part in it. Yeah. She says... I took the pills, I drank the vodka, I asked for them. Right, she acknowledges that she partially put herself in this situation, although Cassidy kept her in it, and that's what makes him a shitty friend. That's what makes his job of taking care of her a shitty one. <laughs> well, yeah, and the fact that, like, it, he just, he never cared what was best for her. Right. You know, he pretended to be concerned, like, oh, you'll feel better when you have your medicine, and all that. But he wasn't doing that to give her comfort. He was doing that to keep her to keep her kind of pliable and in the state where she was low enough to love him. Yeah, that's and right. I don't even know if he understands that that's a manipulation. You know? He's incredibly weak. He's terribly, terribly weak, as we were told. And... To him, trying to keep things at that same shitty note so that the two of them will still be together is probably a perfectly natural thing to do. Well, yeah, she said this is the way that he likes to live. Going from place to place, 
thriving on the indulgence of his scummy friends, taking advantage of people, being drunk and high and sleeping around all the time. It's the way that he likes to be, so he doesn't perhaps see it as strange to keep her in that state. Did you get the impression... She mentions that one of his hotshot Hollywood connections is an ex-porno producer. Okay. Did you get the impression that that's the same guy who sent the sexual bounty hunters after Marty? You know, it makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, it does kind of tie the whole thing together. Yeah. But I think Cassidy wanted Tulip for himself. He didn't care if she was her best self. And once the real Tulip comes back, we see this twice in the story arc. This is me. The, The real Tulip can handle Cassidy... And she instantly forgives Jesse and is ready to be with him again. I picked up this scrap of paper because I thought that I had written something on it that was germane to our podcast. Tortillas. So yeah, do you want to talk about that a little bit? (laughs) (laughs) I've never been a fan of corn tortillas. (laughs) Oh, but they're delicious. I I don't know. I like flour tortillas. They're just told together a little better. Oh, for sure. Like, flour tortillas make for... A more structurally intact taco. Yeah. But corn tortillas are delicious. Yeah, I mean, I guess it all depends on whether you think, you know, getting meat and cheese and salsa on your hands is the fun part of the taco. Well, yeah, a taco that you can't eat with your hands, that you have to eat with a knife and fork, is kind of misses the point of being a taco. But That's a burrito at that point. Yeah, nonetheless, it is still delicious. Although a burrito is still eaten on a tortilla. So it's still on topic. I want to talk about Joe and Tom Coos here for a minute. Okay. I think a lot of people in these stories are basically jokes, black comedy routines. Their stories are laughably off but concoctions of coincidence, absurdity, and bad intentions. Yeah. This is like a hallmark of Preacher. What it shows in part is, as Jesse would put it, God's sense of humor. Yeah, there is really kind of no villain in those stories. Right. Even the pedophile in Joe's story was going to have himself voluntarily chemically castrated. Mm-hmm. You know, he's seen as as wrestling with his his nature. Right. You know, um, Tom Coos, he gets the crap beat out of him by a cannibal mob enforcer sent by the porn producer. But it's really, he's really a victim of circumstances, right? He just, he starts playing with this electric vibrator while his hands are all slippery and... And a horrible accident ensues. Yeah, we didn't talk about the details of exactly how he managed to kill two people in a vibrator accident. He was playing with it while his hands were slippery and dropped a a plug-in dildo into a hot tub. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And this is just like, shitty things happen, often for no reason. That's just a thing that happens in Preacher. And partially it ties into the series' interpretation of God. You know, this, this mean old world, why has God abandoned it? Right, and Garth Ennis's portrayal strikes a kind of similar note of, like, is God the villain in this story? Right, but at the same time, more often than not, preacher characters hold on to hope despite the terrible things that have happened to them. Well, yeah, I mean, Jesse literally knows that God has turned his back on the world. Yeah. And nonetheless is, instead of falling into despair, is thinking about his duty. Right, the world is still worth fighting for, even if he's fighting God. Right. Well, like I said, we're rounding the corner into the home stretch. So Jesse brings that fight to his enemies in our next Preacher episode. But first, join us next week as we explore Sandman and the Furies. The Vertigo's show is written and performed by Eric and I. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. I produce the show and Eric handles social media. If you like our show, you should check out our website vertiguys.blueberry.com where we've got lots more episodes plus show notes on every episode. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on email, vertiguys at gmail.com. That's right. We'd love to hear your questions or if you just want to chat about comics. I am at BlankCastSean on Twitter. Wherever you happen to be listening to the show, leave us a positive review. Recommend us to a friend. But as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. Could have been someone Well, so could anyone You took my dreams from me When I first found you I kept them with me, babe I put them with my own Can't make it all alone I built my dreams around you 
The creaking of this damn chair is going to end up on the recording. I heard it last time. Yeah, that's true. We record in a room. I don't have anything better to sit on. Yeah, I know. We just got to get, like, two freshly oiled chairs. <laughs> we just got to go buy two chairs. We got to buy some chair oil. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like... <laughs> Speaking of, um, speaking of fucking, like, domestic adult shit, I, uh, cleaned my bathtub. Okay. It's it's all white and shiny now. Should I go take a look? Yeah. Wow, it's all white and shiny now. Yeah. Yeah, I took Denzel Washington's advice and just... (laughs) 